All right, well, good evening. Am I on, Mitch? Okay, good. Perfect. All right, so this week I'm going to be speaking. I'm actually going to be speaking for the next several Sunday nights for three Sunday nights in a row. Pastor Todd has given me an opportunity. Uh, the messages I'm speaking on are actually one of the uh, topics that somebody mentioned um, in the QR code in the bulletin, something that, that we would like to hear. Um, so over the next three weeks, I will be talking about my God is, and I'll fill in the blank in just a few minutes on what we're talking about tonight. But before we jump into that, I had a question for you husbands. I'm putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. So husbands, what are some attributes of your wives? Go and give it to me. Beautiful. Be- oh, there we go. Good. We got one. What else? Faithfulness. Huh? Faith- faithfulness. Love. Patience. Patience. Giving. Giving. What, what was the other one? That, that one. Okay. Yep. Good. Okay. Any other ones? Fun. Fun. All right. Why am I doing this right now? Well, what's coming in about two weeks? Valentine's Day. What did I just do for you? I let you just say this on sermon audio so it's recorded forever. So when you get in the doghouse, now you have some doghouse credits and you can go back to this and see... I appreciated you this once. So that's now forever written down. Anybody else want to shout out some answers? Well, you still can. All right, that's what I thought. All right, but question is, how do you know these attributes? And I'm not, I'm not asking you to answer this one, but how do you know like, the attributes of your wife? Well, did your wife hand you a resume when you first met? Um, were the attributes posted on her social media profile? Some of you older people are like, what in the world are you talking about? Um, no, you actually learn them through what? Experience. Experience. You actually got to know her personally from spending time with her time and time again. I think coming up, we have a few people that are going to be celebrating 50-year wedding anniversaries. That, that, to me, is a pretty amazing thing. It's something for, especially us younger couples, to be able to look forward to, to be able to be together for 50 years. Me and my wife, we've been together for 13 years now. I can't believe it's already been 13 some of you are like, oh, you're still so young. Um, we're working there. We're getting through there. But we learn these things through experience. So let me ask this. Christians, what are some attributes of your God? So give me some answers. Holy. Holy. Loving. Loving. Just. Faithful. Faithful. Gracious. Gracious. Perfect. Merciful. Merciful. Yep. Good. Good. Comforting. Comforting. Okay. Just. Just. Yep. Providing. So, how do we know these attributes? From his word. From his word. That's where it starts. But then we actually begin to learn them through experience as we spend time with our God. So here's what I wrote down. He's eternal, unchangeable, all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, just, judge, Righteous, living, merciful, gracious, able, compassionate, faithful, forgiving, sufficient, and good. Some of you might have been thinking, my, thinking of him as he is my father. That's how you would describe him. He's my guide. He's my rock. He's my comforter. He's my shepherd. And he is my savior. Okay, these are all attributes that we could say of God, but until we actually begin to experience them personally, then they're just like I talked about. They're basically words on a resume where we really don't understand what these mean. 
I'm going to read you this, uh, this quote. This is actually from, um, trying to think of it, uh, Culture Translator. I get these notifications about once a week. Um, and this is dealing with teens specifically. But it says this, last summer, the Pew Research Center interviewed over 11,000 Americans about their spiritual experiences, practices, and beliefs. The results of this massive survey were released this past December. Over 80% said that there is something beyond the spiritual world, even if they cannot see it. 74% said there are things that science cannot possibly explain. What's more, 83% of adults believe that people have a soul or a spirit in addition to their physical body. And we will look at that and think, well, that's great. That means a lot of people are looking towards God. Well, it says this, some might find these things encouraging, but when taken in tandem with some of the other findings, a different picture emerges. A quarter of Americans appear to believe that spiritual energies can reside in objects like crystals or stones. Seven in ten say they are spiritual but not religious, a definition that makes them less likely than self-defined religious people to believe in the God of the Bible and more likely to have negative views of organized religion. One might read these survey results and come to two conclusions. Spirituality and an appreciation of the world God made are still a strong component of our culture. But here's this. Fear of God, of the Bible, appears to be in sharp decline. When we look at these numbers, it makes sense that young people who want to maintain a strong, ongoing, personal relationship with God are confused by, catch this, two things. Who he, who he is or how to talk to him. So as I was praying through what to pick for this three-week series, I actually picked the sermons that we're going to be speaking on, talking about the attributes of God, before I read this. So what an appropriate time that we need to get back to talking about who our God is and not just speaking up from him from the surface perspective, but we've actually experienced that we know who our God is and can clearly show that to anyone else because we've personally been there and been with him. So who is our God and how do we talk to him? So going back to the attributes of God, which attribute do you think is mentioned most? And it's so far outnumbered all the other attributes. I actually looked this up in my study. It's actually holy. The term holy, in all its forms, it's used over 600 times in Scripture to refer to God, um, other living beings, and other things. So it refers to three different things. But here's some ones that specifically refer to God. God is referred to as the Holy One 48 times. And then you have the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, is mentioned 97 times. So if God is holy, don't you think it's important that we truly understand what it means for him to be holy? I would say absolutely yes. So let's jump right into this. I want you to turn your Bibles. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 tonight. And really, this message, this is for all people. This is not just for adults. This is not just for kids. This is for everybody. So even kids that are in here right now, I know some of you are first and second grade, and sometimes it's hard to pay attention. Try the best you can to really pay attention tonight, because if you really begin to understand who our God is, it's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you act. It's going to change the way you respond to him. He's not just going to be somebody that's talked about in Sunday school class. It's going to be, he's going to be somebody that you personally begin to understand and know. So in verse number one, let's read this. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, 
high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So I'm going to stop right there, and we'll do the next three verses shortly. So you see two people mentioned in this verse. You have Uzziah, who was a king of Judah. Let's stop and talk about him for a second. He was an earthly king. For 52 years, Uzziah had led Judah in a program of peace and prosperity. It was an era of expansion and achievement. 52 years. Imagine having a leader for 52 years. And the Bible calls him a good king, even though in the end of his life, uh, Wearsby said this, that he rebelled against the word of God and died a leper. This was at the very end of his life. But for most of his life, for most of his uh, kingly reign, he was a good king. Uh, they were expanding a lot. They were building a lot. They were prosperous. And he died. And imagine our leader dying like that, somebody that we really looked up to and we thought, he's really doing a great thing for America. He's doing a great thing for our country. He dies. What are a lot of people beginning to, to think? What's going to happen? How are we going to get through this now? Who's, who's going to come up next? And we begin to wring our hands and wonder, wh wh where are we going to go now? Because at some point, we begin to trust in these earthly leaders, these earthly kings, and think that they're the answer to our problems. That's why so often we'll, we'll come up here and say, yeah, we need to vote in the elections, but they're not the ones we're putting our confidence in. It's, it's not earthly men, because earthly men, in the, in the long run, they come and go. Over a short period of time, you forget about them completely. And right here in this, he is not the main point. He's just a footnote in this whole passage. Really, the one this passage is talking about is not about the earthly king that just passed away. It's talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who always sits on the throne. You see, the bottom line, and we're dealing with this so much nowadays, we're dealing with uh, humanism, we're dealing with atheism, we're dealing with... Um, Relativism, we're dealing with all these things where people are questioning uh, real truth. They're questioning the God of the Bible, and they're beginning to rely upon their own understanding, their own knowledge, their own, we would say, foolishness. Because God calls the wisdom of this world foolishness. The bottom line of atheism, this is from Gusick, or materialism, is that there is no throne. There is no seat of authority or power that the entire universe must answer to. The bottom line of humanism is that there is a throne, but man sits upon it. So in each of these examples, either you have no throne or you're putting man in place of God on the throne. But right here, Isaiah, God's almost pulling him back and saying, I'm still on the throne. I've never moved. I've never changed. I'm still here. And now we begin to look at the one who actually sits on the throne. Verse number two. It says this, above it, above the throne, it stood the seraphims, each having one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And I skipped ahead a little bit because I wanted to make another point. But going back to verse number one, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So I began to look through this. Um, who is it that's sitting on the throne? And we would say, God, God the Father, okay? That's what I would assume. John 12, turn with me there real quick. I want you to see this. John chapter 12, verse 37. I'll give you just a second to get there. 
Because as we go through this, I don't want you just to believe everything I say. I want you to actually see the scripture for yourself so you can come to your own conclusion. But I'm going to tell you the conclusion I came to after reading this passage. It says in John 12, verse 37, it says this, But though he had done so many miracles, talking about Jesus, before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah, that's Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? This is a direct quotation from the end of Isaiah. And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, this is another reference to the book of Isaiah, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 6 that we're studying right now. Catch this, verse 41. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Who is John chapter 12 talking about? This is Jesus. You see, Hollywood likes to, to fill our impression of who Jesus is. And... They're really good at twisting it, aren't they? They're really good at manipulating it to make him more like us. But the thing is, Jesus is not us. And as you begin to look into this passage, you're going to see how much different he is, which is going to make you even more amazed that he says in John chapter 1 that he took on flesh, that he came down because he loved us. And that he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities because as you see in this passage, you're going to see a different side of him that really begins to make you think about who is Jesus. So I hope by the time you get through this tonight that it really changes your perspective on who he is in a good way, viewing him on who he should be viewed as. So we see right here, this, this being is none other than Jesus. I, I personally believe this. You can come to your own conclusion, but this is the conclusion I came to after reading John chapter 12 because it talks about Jesus. said We saw his glory referring again to the same person and spake of him. And here's the thing. It says in verse number one, going back to Isaiah chapter six, that he sits on the throne and he is high and lifted up. That means he's lofty, he's exalted, he is above all other things. His throne, his rule, his kingdom does not end. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? This is talking about an earthly house that they were talking about building or that they had built. But he right now is in his heavenly temple. So when Isaiah gets called up in, in this um, time, he's now standing before, Isaiah, Uzziah just died, he's standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he's looking up. I mean, just put yourself in his place, because this really happened. He's now looking up and seeing the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, high and lifted up. It says, his train filled the temple. If you look at a train, in about six days, uh, Carson and Alyssa are about to get married. Okay, Alyssa, I don't know if you're going to have a super long train. Where is she? Yeah, she'll listen to me later. Um, but a lot of brides, they have what? They have a super long train. 
And you have other people, you have the bridesmaids, they'll come along and they'll wait hand and foot on that person. They'll move that train, especially when they get up here on the platform, they'll move it around. They're waiting on them and they're serving them at that moment in time. So when it talks about Jesus right here, having a train that fills the whole temple, this is showing his status. That he doesn't personally have to do anything. Everyone else is subservient to him because he is the creator. John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. What's the next part? All things were made by him. When he made everything, he spoke it into existence in six days. This is Jesus our Lord. The one who came down in human flesh, he was the one speaking the worlds into existence in six days. And this right here is showing his kingliness, his importance, his power. He is high and lifted up. He is above all creation. Because he was not created, but he is the creator. And then it says there, I wrote this down, there is no God like him. He sits alone on that throne. No man, no science, no theory, no religion can remove him from that throne. No cultural shift or social upheaval can remove him from that throne. He is set apart. Going back to Isaiah, this was a very tumultuous time for Judah and Israel. So it would be very easy to become distraught when earthly kings that we appreciated are now dying or passing away, and you're wondering what's going to come next. Fast forward to where we are now. Same kind of problems. Our world seems in complete chaos. We see wickedness like we've never seen before. People have no desire for God. There's no desire whatsoever for his holiness. But he's still God. He's still on the throne, and he's still there. And one day he will be coming back. So we have the Holy One right there in verse number one. Let's go to verse number two. And this is the worship of the Holy One. It says, above it, above his throne, it said, stood the seraphims, each having six wings, with two he covered his faith, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. So we see right here these, these angels, these seraphims, I don't want to focus too much on them because that's not the whole point of the story. The whole point of the story is the one they are worshiping. The very first thing they're saying is holy, holy, holy. And there's that word again. We're talking about tonight, my God is holy. So what does that even mean? Holy, when you look at the translation, it means to be set apart. But isn't it interesting that God right here gives us a word, image, a picture of what it really means to be set apart. When he sits on his throne high and lifted up, his train fills the temple, there's all this glory, and you have these angels, they have six wings, two they're flying with, two they're covering their feet with, because the feet are the most uncomely part, so they would cover that because it's a humbling part. Then they were covering what else? Their eyes. Why? Because even perfect angels can't look at him. Because he is that much set apart. He is that holy. He is that much separated from all creation. That even the angels 
the perfect angels, the sinless angels, are covering their eyes. And the only thing they can think to say at this moment is holy, holy, holy. They didn't say it once. They said it three times, which should get you to draw your attention to that, that he truly is set apart. There's no human word that can really describe just the distance we have between him and creation. Revelation 4.8, this describes another scene where you have God sitting on the throne. Um, same thing with the angels crying, holy, holy, holy. Exodus 15.11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? 1 Timothy 6.16 says this, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So as you look at this and you imagine this whole scene as Isaiah is taken here in the very temple of God and now seeing Jesus on the throne, just how light it was. When we see that God comes back one day and he sets up his new kingdom, he is going to be the one, after the millennial kingdom, after the earth is destroyed and after everything is made new, new creation, he is going to be the one providing light for all of us. There will be no sun, moon, and stars providing light for us like we see now. I don't know if you've ever been outside before, um, but now I'm having to teach my kids, like, don't look at the sun. Like, don't stare at the sun. But it's so pretty, Mom. It's so pretty, Dad. It's like, no, I don't want you to lose your vision. But if we begin to look at the sun, what do we do? Immediately, our eyes are squinting. We can't really comprehend it. How many of you in here were there when they, um, that solar eclipse happened probably like five or six years ago? And how many of you actually went to go see that you saw the full eclipse? All right, I had to work that day. I wish I could have went and seen it. They said we'd be able to see a partial one. I didn't really see much of anything. But from the pictures I saw and from the stories I heard, it was what? It was a pretty amazing thing. Just how dark it gets when the sun is completely covered and what it looks like. Pretty miraculous thing. Now take that and take the one who spoke all the suns of the universe, all the stars, all the planets. On day number four, he spoke into existence. Our sun, if you've ever looked at pictures of it, I think they did this back in BBS. Um, actually, I think they even did this summer at the camp. They showed different sizes of different suns. Our sun is so tiny. Like, if you look at the comparison of other suns out there, ours is so tiny. If you were to put one of those other suns, like in our solar system, we would be within the sun right now. That's how big they are. And yet, our God made that in one day. That's the kind of glory and light he was seeing at this very moment. And you have these angels, they proclaim three things. He is holy, holy, holy. And then it said, um, he is the Lord of hosts. That means he is the Lord of all the armies. He has control over everything. You have all the armies of the earth. They won't even stand up against him one day. It's going to be him. He's going to be the one destroying them completely. And they won't stand a chance as we all just get to sit there and watch. And then it says that he is, uh, let me find the place real quick. It says the whole earth or the whole, the whole earth is full of his glory. Let's stop real quick. Do we see the earth full of his glory right now? I'm not tricking you. I'm not. Do we see the earth full of his glory right now? A lot of times we, we can start to look around and say, 
with the way everything is going, Pastor Mike, if I'm being honest, it, it's getting hard to see. And I get it. I know where you're coming from. Um, I was just doing a survey or reading a survey recently talking about like how so many young people are walking away from Christianity and becoming what we call religious nuns, where they're becoming either agnostic, atheist, or somewhere in that spectrum. Um, and it's easy to ask the question, why are they leaving the church? One person actually asked the opposite question. Why are people staying in the church? It's pretty interesting. Sometimes I don't even really think about that. A lot of times I can be that, ha- that glass half empty kind of person. But if we really begin to look around, you can see his glory. Now that said, it's not his full glory because we are in a cursed world. And that has been that way ever since the dawn of man, when man sinned against God. So do we see the earth full of his glory? Sometimes it's hard to see. It's easy to focus on the self-destruction of our culture. But if you look at Psalm 19, it describes this, that the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Right, that was on the front of the science building when I used to go to college, walk in there. Uh, sometimes I'd give it a little thought, but most of the time I was running to my next test or class, and I was like, okay, i got to get there real quick. Now I can take a little more time to think about it, now I'm out of that. But that said, have you ever been outside at night, outside of Atlanta, when you can actually see the stars? <laughs> I mean, you can see like one or two up in the sky. Wow. Um, but we used to go to a trip to Canada. Uh, you can ask us about it later, probably the worst vacation we've ever been on. But that said, we were out in the middle of nowhere. That's probably part of what made it the worst vacation ever. Um, and mosquitoes, whew. They are bad out there. But at night, when it would cool off and the sky was perfectly clear, you could look up and you could see just millions and millions of dots in the sky. What's amazing is some of those dots you see up there are entire galaxies. Like, it's not just one star. It's an entire galaxy of stars, of thousands and millions of stars in one little spot. That is not the glory we're looking for. You know what that is? Those are signposts showing you the true one who is the one who is, has the glory. You see, we can get so focused on those things and think, that's the glory, that's the amazing thing, but those things were all still created. It's just like when you would go to the Grand Canyon. I've been there once in my life. We could stop and see the signposts as we're going there and saying, Grand Canyon this way and stop and just admire that signpost and stop there and never go any further. And what do we do? We just missed what? The Grand Canyon. Okay, we can look at those things and miss something much, much better. And that's the God that we're talking about right here in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah is personally seeing with his own eyes. The whole earth is full of his glory. And why do we miss God's holiness and glory? And I'm guilty of this too. Why do I get so focused on the things in this world that are falling apart? And like Isaiah did, and I'm assuming he probably did when the king died, and it's like, what's going to happen now? Where's our culture going? How are my kids going to be able to survive this? Um, it's, It's just a very difficult situation. We get so focused on that. But what are our eyes not looking for at that moment? We're not, we're not looking at God, the one who sits on the throne. 
And I ask myself this question, why do we get so distracted? What is it that begins to block our view so we don't see God? Because if we'll look for it, we can see his glory. Let me show you one thing. Does this block our view? Yeah. It blocks our view a lot, doesn't it? Sometimes this can begin to consume our life where it becomes the one thing that we begin focused on. I, think, I talked to the teens earlier today talking about this. When you wake up in the middle of the night, what, what do a lot of us do? We can't fall back asleep. Uh, some of the teens were saying they clean. Surprisingly, it was all the girls that said they clean. None of the guys do. That should tell you what you need to know. Um, but what do a lot of us as adults do when we wake up in the middle of the night? We pull out our phones and we just scroll mindlessly through stuff that really doesn't matter. And then we wake up the next morning and it's like, ugh, another day. Like things are just, they're not, they're not good. And it's almost like we kind of lose that hope because our eyes get focused on the temporal instead of focusing on the eternal like we ought to. And like I said, I'm guilty of that. Like that's, that's something where I'm having to come to grips with. If I really want to see God's glory and his holiness, I can find it. Where do I find it? God's word. I study it. I read it. I meditate on it. I let it begin to change me from the inside out. And then even in the midst of all the things that are going on in this world, just like we've been learning about on Sunday mornings with Paul and Silas and all these other people who experienced some really bad things, they could still sing praises to God because they still see that he sits on the throne, even as man is trying to tear him down off the throne with their own wicked ways. So this is the whole thing he sees. And in verse number four, and the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. This is a very terrifying experience for him to see right there. The doors of the house shook, and this was, from what I can understand, this was the angels speaking, and even these angels who are covering their eyes and covering their feet, even at their voice, the house of the, the, his, his house, his temple, began to shake. But again, they're just creatures. They're not the creator himself. And it says the house was filled with smoke. So what does Isaiah do next? Because we can get to this point and we can talk about the attributes of God, but if we don't walk away saying, how is that changing the way I actually live, then we're missing the point. Because when we're talking about living the Christian life, no matter who you are and what stage of life you are, it starts with seeing God for who he is. We so often get focused on the, here's what I need to do in life, here's the how-to of life, but not who I'm living for. And that's why Isaiah right here, you're going to see his response comes from he saw God for who he is. He saw him in all his holiness. And then it says in verse 5, Then said I, woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. You see, that very first statement of Isaiah is, Woe is me, I am undone. 
right here he is showing that separation between him and his God. Um, I like the word woe. I actually looked it up, the uh, Hebrew. It's O-W-Y. What does that sound like? O-W-I, or O-W-Y. Oi, or what would a kid say when they stub their toe? Owie, okay. So when you stub your toe, and it's always the pinky toe, why is it always the pinky toe? Like, that's the worst toe to stub. First thing you say is, ow, and, why you, and what do you say next? You say it multiple times if it really hurts, right? All right, you have Isaiah right here, and that's, that's just a small example. But he's saying, woe is me. In other words, this is a passionate cry of grief or despair. This is not like stubbing your toe. This is something much, much worse. And he says, I am undone. Literally, this means to cease, to cut off, to destroy. He right here is feeling as if he is being pulled apart in the very presence of God because God is that separate from man in all creation. He's feeling like he's about to be destroyed. And he says, and I love this, this is a, in the moment, a complete and honest confession of where he's at. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. If we looked at Isaiah, we would say this man is a godly man. Like, he's one that, he was a prophet, he followed after the Lord. He served in a very difficult time during the time of Judah. And he was very faithful. But even in the presence of his God, this godly man that we look up to, the first thing he says, woe is me, I'm undone. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, what comes out of my mouth does not honor God. It's not pleasing to God. It's not right for this holy God. And he's very honest. Because if we're honest, where does a lot of our problems come from? Comes from what? Our mouth. If we're honest, our mouth is what gives us away on the type of people we are. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's our mouth that, that shows us who we truly are. James 3, 6 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. But in this moment, you see him saying right here, this is true confession. And true confession is being specific with God. It's not just saying, I'm sorry for what I've done. He's being very specific. Like, I, my mouth is defiled. My mouth is not honoring to you. Um, Isaiah had nothing to hide behind at this point because honestly, in God's light, in his purity, it exposes everything. I think it's hard sometimes as Christians to want to open our Bible when we're running from God because what does it do? It exposes our hypocrisy. It exposes what we're doing in this life and knowing that it doesn't please God and we know deep down that's not right. You look at the... Um, people today who are unsaved. Um, I'm going to get to that verse in just a minute, but I believe the same thing. The reason that they don't want to hear about God is because when you begin to look at God's holiness specifically, it's, it's very uncomfortable. Just like Isaiah said right here, woe is me, I am undone. It's very uncomfortable, and we don't like pain. We don't like to be put in that kind of position. Um, 
Let me ask this question. Let's see if one of you can get this. All right, if you get this, I will be impressed. How big is the observable universe? How many light years? Oh, nobody knew this. That's kind of sad. That's disappointing. Well, good thing I looked it up. So anyway, the observable universe, according to scientists, because scientists are always right, yeah, um, is 94 billion light years across. 94 billion. I know that number seems small because of all the trillions we're in debt, but when you really think about it, that's, that's pretty long distance. Right, God created all that in six days. That's the universe. That we can see. That we can see. Very, very good point, which means there's probably a whole lot more. How expansive is his separateness from us? You think, wow, the, big, the universe is big. How distant are we from God? That's what Isaiah, Isaiah was experiencing right there and then. Woe is me, I am undone. You see, other godly men that we would look up to and say the heroes of the faith, when they're confronted with God's holiness, it's similar responses. You have Job in, in his response, wherefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You have Daniel, for my comeliness was turned into, in me into corruption and I retain no strength. And then you have Peter in, in Luke. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, these are all responses when we come face to face with God's holiness, just how separate he is from us. And by the way, his holiness describes really all his other attributes. His love is completely separate from our love. His mercy, completely separate from our mercy. His grace, completely separate from our grace. His justice, completely separate from our justice. His wrath, completely different and separate from our wrath. Wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God, but his does work righteousness. And you see right here, I love what Wearsby says, when believers have a true experience with the Lord, it does not make them proud. Rather, it humbles and breaks them. But it doesn't end here. It says in the very next verse, it says, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. And this is where we see the cleansing of man by God. Before he's in complete fear, he's thinking he's going to be completely destroyed, and now you have God offering him cleansing. Where did it start? Where did he put the coal? His lips. Isn't that interesting? That was the part that, that Isaiah was talking about, how his lips were the one that was unclean. That was his honest confession. And the angel puts it on his lips from off what? Wait. What was the two pieces of furniture mentioned in this place? The altar and the throne. throne. And what was the other one? The altar. The altar. There's an altar in God's heavenly temple. Why would there be an altar there? Well, before we get going too far, Gusick says this, the throne is for God. That is where he rules and reigns. The altar is for us. That is where we find cleansing and purging from sin. Amen. We should never confuse the two. 
You see all the things that they did in the earthly temple, some of the things we do in here at church, it's, it's representations of what things are like in heaven. It can't really show you what heaven is like, but it gives you ideas. But right here we see the altar, and that was for man. And we see all the fire, the smoke, and everything coming from the altar and ultimately coming from our God because the scriptures say our God is a consuming fire. We know that, that fire, we know eventually that those who don't believe in him will be cast into the lake of fire. That's a place of torment and, and destruction. We know eventually that our works will be tried by fire um, and anything that was not done in the right spirit or motive and not done according to his word will be burned up, the wood, hay, and stubble. Um, Jesus, in, or in Luke chapter 3, it talks about how Jesus is going to baptize people with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So we know our God is a God of fire, and this fire is coming from him, and you have this altar right here with these burning hot coals. Obviously, it's on fire. The angel flies and brings one of these, these coals from off the altar, puts it on his lips. But how much of his sin does it take care of? It says, thine iniquity is taken away, thy sin is purged. That means completely wiped out. Isn't it interesting? As we come to God and we confess the things that we know are not right, that God takes away all of it. It's not just a partial cleansing or purging. God cleanses us from all sin. When we honestly come before him and say, woe is me, I'm undone, um, I cannot match up with your holiness. I don't deserve anything from you. When we honestly call to him to save us because we cannot save ourselves, he takes all sin away. Um, Isaiah's cleansing is a picture of God's mercy and grace. You can see in multiple places, Isaiah 43, it talks about he blotteth out thy transgressions. He does not remember my sins. Isaiah 53, it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we were healed. Isaiah 57, so you see right here, Isaiah's saying these things because this is something he personally experienced. Isaiah 57, it says, uh, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabit eternity, speaking back to Jesus, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. We cannot truly, and I'll say this, because this is why we're talking about holiness tonight. We cannot truly understand the vastness of God's love, mercy, and grace if we do not understand his holiness. Because why would Christ love me and die for me? If I compare his love to other people's love, and that's probably what a lot of people we witness to and talking to in the world that don't really understand who God is, in their mind, they're comparing his love to what they know, and it's broken people. It's not going to impact them in the same way until they begin to understand his holiness. Because then you begin to wonder, if God is that far and separated from me in his holiness, how much greater is his love that he would dare save a sinner like me? So notice Isaiah, he could do absolutely nothing to cleanse himself. That's what he came to. He realized, I can't do anything. I'm done. 
But that's where Jesus steps in. The very holiness of God showed the ridiculous nature of trying to earn our own salvation, as many people try to nowadays. Because Isaiah, when he saw God, he realized, I can't do this. And sadly, a lot of people today are trying to earn God's favor. They're trying to earn salvation. You can't do it because we have a holy and righteous God. He's too separated from us. You kids, what game do you always like to play in the living room when you jump from furniture to furniture? What's that called? The floor is lava. Okay, you all said it. All right? And I'm sorry if your kids do this because inevitably something always gets knocked over, does it not? But they're pretending like the, Lord, the, the floor is literally on fire, and they'll jump from couch to this piece of furniture. They'll jump on the table with your lamp that was from your grandma and falls over and crashes. Um, and they're constantly trying not to touch the floor. We often think, a lot of people will think, like God's holiness is kind of like that where I can jump from place to place. That's not what it's like. It's infinitely, infinitely separate. It's not like the floor is lava. And that's where Isaiah came to is, I'm too separated, but God provided cleansing. And you see in this passage, Isaiah, he experienced both ends of the fear of the Lord because at the very beginning he said, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. This was a type of fear that he experienced. This was a terror type of fear. You see repeatedly in the Bible, the teens and me have talked about this. There's also another type of fear that we're about to talk about And this fear was an awe and reverence type of fear. This fear is a reverent submission that leads to obedience. That's from Welsh, and that's from when people are big and God is small. I'll say that again. The fear that Isaiah is about to experience that we're about to talk about is a reverent submission that leads to obedience. It started with terror. He was forgiven. And then we have the submission that leads to obedience. By the way, just a side note. What is the fear of the Lord the beginning of? Wisdom. It also says in the Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, actually in the Proverbs, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Parents, what do we need in order to raise our families? Wisdom. It's knowledge applied. So how do we get the fear of the Lord? I mean, I just gave you the answer. How do we get the wisdom of the Lord? From the fear of the Lord, that's the foundation. Fear, or the fear of the Lord, that's our response to God's holiness. So really, at the root of all of it, parents, where do we need to get to to change the way we parent, to change the way we love our spouse, to change the way we live? We need to get down to God's holiness. That will change us like it changes Isaiah, as we see right here. Um, Luke 4:27 or Luke 7:47 says this, "Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom much or to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little." Isaiah we're about to see as he changes, you can see that his love for God is infinitely more because of how much he's been forgiven. And this is again, this is Isaiah who we would consider a very godly man. Um I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but think in your minds, how many of you have heard somebody get up and give a testimony on how God saved them, and it's all these like, terrible things that God saved them out of, and just the change that happened in their life, and you think, well, that's not me. 
I was saved when at five. I wasn't involved in all these different things and drugs and prostitution or and alcohol and all these life-dominating things that, that ruin so many families and ruin so many people. I wasn't involved in all these. I don't have this fancy testimony. And we almost get this idea of, yeah, I'm not a terrible sinner. I don't think we'd ever say that, but that's kind of the thoughts and impressions that come across as we think through it. When we stand before God's holiness, what are we? Terrible sinner. You want to understand the vastness of his forgiveness? Go stand before him. Open up the very words of the book. Because right here, when he's talking Jesus in context, he was speaking to the Pharisees. When the woman came and washed his feet. And the Pharisees, they would not have considered themselves terrible sinners. Because they really didn't understand God's holiness. Or else they wouldn't have been trying to work towards salvation. But anybody who really looks at his holiness understands we're all terrible sinners. And we, like Isaiah, Isaiah and Daniel and Peter and all these other godly men, when they experienced it, realized, I am that person. That's why the Apostle, Apostle Paul could say, I am the chief among sinners. Man, we very much look up to. So you have Isaiah's upward look. He first looks at God, and then he looks inward. He sees his, his complete separation from God. He realizes he's about to be destroyed. God forgives him. And now we have Isaiah's outward look, and this is where we see the obedience. The fear that has changed from terror has now changed from awe and submission to now I'm going to serve God with all my heart. Because in verse number 8, and we're almost done, it says this, Also I have heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And what did he say? And who will go for us? And read this with me. Then said I, Here am I, send me. We sing that verse all the time. Here am I, Lord, send me. Sometimes I sing it and don't really consider it like I should. But this is referring back to that verse. By the way, did you notice today in a lot of our songs, um, one of the backgrounds had Isaiah 6-8 repeated? I didn't tell the song people what we were going to be preaching about today. But I saw that verse continually broke, put up on the screen. You see, God calls broken humans to share his holy message. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It's not because we're amazing things or amazing creatures, but because of his own purpose and grace, he's called us. He allows us to be part of this holy message that we get to share with other people. How we are so separate from God, but God loved us and gave his son. He gave everything for us. He gave his son who was sitting on the throne that Isaiah saw. The one who is high lifted up. The angel was saying, holy, holy, holy. This is the one that came to earth to die for us. Hebrews 3, 1 through 2 says this, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So God calls us all to share his holy message. And you see right here, Isaiah says, Here are my Lord, send me. Isaiah answers God's call. You see, when he came face to face with God's holiness, we see the whole progression of the response. We see 
He, he knows he's about to be destroyed. God forgives him, and now he's answering God's call because he's been so changed by it. Gusick says this, What created this kind of heart in Isaiah? First, he had a heart that had been in the presence of God. He had a heart that knew its own sinfulness. He had a heart that knew the need among the people, the need for God's word. He had a heart that had been touched by God's cleansing fire. And he had a heart that had heard God's heart to reach the nations. So now Isaiah, who just experienced this personally, this, this cleansing from God, had the privilege of going out and telling other people. By the way, how many people listen to Isaiah? Not a whole lot. How many people listen to Jeremiah? About 130, 40 years later. No one. See, our job is not the results. Our job is just to do what God has called us to do and let him take care of the results. And also, don't miss this. Here's another point in here. Don't miss that when our, we have this call to witness, and like I said earlier, the unsaved will not comprehend God's love and mercy apart from God's holiness. We must express to people God's holiness. And this is not to go out and yell at somebody and say, you are going to hell. Now, do people need to go? They're going, no, they're going to hell. Yeah, absolutely. But the reason they're going there is because God is so holy and righteous and pure and sin cannot be in his presence. People need to know that important aspect of God because then at some point it clicks in their mind and they realize, I've got no hope apart from God, but then they know about God's love too, his mercy and grace, and they call out to him and can trust in him. This must be a part of our witnessing when we talk to people. And I, at some point, want to talk through this that we need to include, and this is from a book I read, um, Gospel Reset. The teens are reading it for Mission Trip right now, but this is Ken Ham. talks about when we have the gospel, the gospel can't just be the New Testament. The gospel also needs to include Genesis. We need to know where we came from, who was the God that created us, and we need to know where the fall happened because that's all part of the gospel. Because we live in a culture, in a world right now where a lot of people don't know those foundational truths. So when you start off with the um, God loves you, you need to get saved, they don't understand that. Saved from what? We need to start and give the full picture of the gospel. So here's the application. We're almost done. Where you look for all, where you look for awe, will shape the direction of your life. This is from Paul David's trip book by the same title, Awe. Just started reading this, so I, I can't completely rec recommend the book to you. I want to read a book first completely before I do that. But the first chapter was very good. I know several of you read it and recommended it. Um, but he says, where you look for awe will shape the direction of your life. Where do we look for awe? I mean, some people like to jump out of airplanes, and that's where they look for awe. Um, most of you are probably not that person. Some people like to go on roller coasters. I'm that kind of person. I love doing that. Um, some of you, you would probably die if you went on one of those things. Like, you could not stand it. Um, you have some of these crazy people that will go out and try to, like, wrestle an alligator and whatnot, and that's their version of looking for awe. You have some people that begin to look for awe in the very things that we see all the time in life, whether it be sports. We look for that sometimes. Uh, possessions. Maybe looking in awe in, in our houses. 
There's different places we're looking for awe, and ultimately we were created to be in awe of something. But you notice what happens as we look in all those other places? We're never satisfied. We're left empty. And looking for awe, where you look will shape the direction of your life. If I'm looking for it in God, remember, awe is my response to God's holiness. In other words, awe is the fear of the Lord. If I'm looking to God and he creates that awe in me, it's going to change the way I act and what I do, just like it changed Isaiah. So why do new Christians have such a passion for, and awe for God? It's because they understand truly how much they've been forgiven. It's easy as we grow in Christianity to begin to forget just what God did for us. We need to constantly remind ourselves of what God did for us, bring ourselves back to God's holiness, because it keeps us in the proper perspective. We live amongst a culture and a people with identity crisis. Christ changes my identity and gives me, my life, a whole new meaning and purpose. As Christians, we need to be continually confronted with his holiness. So that's, that's number one. Number two, only God can fill that awe void that he created. Remember, it's a response to God's holiness. All other things in life will leave you ultimately empty and disappointed. Is it possible to see his holiness and reject him? What do you think? Yeah, it is. Sadly, it is. I think about Satan. He was in the very presence of God, and he rejected him. Look at the Israelites. While Moses was still up on the mountain, they saw the thunder, the lightning, the cloud, the fire, all of it, the earthquakes, and yet how they turned away from God. And it says this in John 3, 19, and this is why people ultimately don't want to be confronted with God's holiness. This is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made known or manifest, that they are wrought in God. So as Christians, if we've been going through 1 John with the teens, we need to make sure that we're consistently staying in the light. That means within the word of God and spending that time with him because he'll continually, he'll continually show us where we're falling short and where we need to confess and make things right with him. But like I said, sometimes as Christians, we know we're not right and we want to just kind of close it or we just read it real quick so we don't get too deep into it and begin to consider but we really need to come face to face with God's holiness because it will change us. Here's number three. My response to God's holiness will change the way I relate to others. It will change the way you love your wife or your husband. It will change the way you raise your kids. For everyone in here, it will change the way you respond to authority, especially kids in here, teens, younger kids. You're not going to respond correctly to your parents until you learn how to respond to who? God. Because if I learn how to respond to God and come face to face with his holiness, when God says, children, obey your parents, it's going to hold a lot more weight than just somebody telling you to follow something because now you understand who is telling you. It will change the way you witness because now from personal experience, you will realize how great God's forgiveness and love have been in your life based on his holiness, how separate he is from us and yet he still loved us and sought us and saved us. 
We cannot be merely hearers of the word. Those who know us best will see right through it and will not be interested in what we have to offer. And here's my last application. Keep seeking his holiness and live knowing that you will see Jesus one day. I love this passage. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, it says, Wherefore, gird up your lines, or gird up, that's two words combined. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end of the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance, but as he, hath call, as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. There's that word again, conversation, but it actually means behavior. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. How do we learn how to be holy? It's implied right there. The very last phrase, for I am holy. So who do we have to learn from first? God. We have to experience and learn from his holiness in order to know how to be holy, how to be separate, how to be set apart in this world, to be in the world but not of the world. So for the next coming two weeks, we're going to dive into this. My next message is going to be, my God is merciful and gracious. And then my last message is going to be, my God is faithful and good. But I wanted to start you on God's holiness because if we, as Isaiah, begin to see God's holiness, God's mercy and grace, it really pops off the page. You really begin to, to see just how amazing it is. God's faithfulness and goodness, without question, so much greater than we ever even consider. So let's go ahead and pray, and then I believe uh, Pastor Mike will come up here and close us in the song. Father, as we close tonight, I pray that everyone in here walks away not, not seeing what man said or what I said, but seeing ultimately what your word says. Father, I ask that these would just not be words on the page that we just kind of look at and it doesn't really change our life. That it wouldn't be something like, like I was talking about earlier where we just kind of were bored in the middle of the night, open up our phones and just scroll through social media and same way, just scroll through our Bible and that way we can check off a box but that we would begin to seek your holiness with all our heart, soul, and mind. That's part of loving you with all our heart, soul, and mind. And I pray as we seek your holiness and see your holiness that we would have the right response that Isaiah had. We would humbly acknowledge our own sin, confess it, and that we would respond to you and say, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'll do it. Here am I, Lord, send me. Father, help us to be about your business. But we need your cleansing power and we need you to change us from the inside out in order to be vessels to use, be used for, for honor for you. I ask this all in your son's name. Amen.